Great God, we stand in awe of you. Uh, Your majesty shines in all of creation. Your might is seen in the immensity of the events that overwhelm us in creation. And our hearts are moved, great God, for those who have suffered in these events. When we try to understand your perspective, the best place we can go is to our Lord Jesus Christ and see him weeping at the untimely death of his friend Lazarus. Weeping over the ravages of sin that those who were created to be in fellowship with God in a perfect universe should die and die untimely deaths and be ravaged by enemies, the last one of which is death. And we lament, Lord, the effect of sin that it caused the whole creation to groan and long for redemption. And we ourselves know what that groaning is. And this morning we stand beside you and you put your arms around us and we weep together. Have mercy, please, Lord. Thank you that out of such a drastic tragedy, a strong sense of community is built. Thank you for all those who have helped, who have assisted, who have gone and given. And please bless those who will go from Green Tree Church as our representatives. And now, Father, we are to open your word. It's an awe-inspiring moment. We are to stand on the rim of a grand canyon, which is far vaster than either the mother of all Grand Canyons, the Grand Canyon itself. Uh, Inspire us with the majesty of your word. May it bring to our simple hearts wisdom. May it bring joy to our mourning. May it expand our living. Uh, May we celebrate the greatness of God even as we hear the word of God. And this we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. We are to consider Romans chapter 7, verses 1 to 6 this morning. And I've entitled this passage, Marriage, Duty Bound or Love Struck. Let this little circle represent a minor traffic accident. It's just a fender bender on the off-ramp at Manchester, 4 o'clock one Friday afternoon. You exchange insurance details. You're a bit chagrined because it's not your fault. Wasted your time. There are a few more hassles involved, getting quotes for fixing the damage and dealing with insurance and so on and so forth. But it's not really a big deal. And then a registered letter arrives and it's from an attorney who is holding you responsible for the whiplash of five people in the other car and there's a slew of legalese that you 
can't begin to fathom. And so you need an attorney. And that simple incident expands, and this is what the attorney sees. And that's just the start of what he sees, because here how he looks at the minor incident. He asks all the questions relating to a worst-case scenario. What if? What if? What if? Then he is trained to represent you in court, so he knows all about precedents, case law, juries, courtroom procedure. And if he's really smart, he even understands the judge's dyspepsia. Your perspective was a minor fender bender. His perspective is this broad overview with myriad particulars. Well, Paul tells us that he's a lawyer. He says he's a Pharisee of the Pharisees. Therefore, he's not just looking at your life in the trench where you are right now. He's stepping back and taking the big view of salvation. And he is concerned with all of the issues that relate to the gospel as a lawyer would relate to it. But the fabulous thing about Paul is that he's not just this highly trained lawyer who would qualify to be on the Supreme Court. He's also a pastor. And so shining through all of this on many occasions, there comes a heart of love. And he, he's exploring our situation as people who are caught in the trap of our sin and of our guilt and the glorious liberty that the gospel brings. And as he does that, of course, he, he is aware of the many, many difficulties that come to a logical person relating to the gospel, and even more so to a legal eagle. And so he puts the gospel under a microscope, and he is examining in Romans chapter 7 our relationship to the law, which is a really important one because... Well, I'll explain to you why. <laughs> Here are some of the issues relating to it. Here is what he says in chapter 1 and verse 17. In the gospel, a righteousness from God is revealed. A righteousness that is by faith from first to last. In chapter 3, verse 24, he says, But now a righteousness apart from the law has been made known. And immediately there should be warning bells in your heart and in your mind saying, What? I can go to a judge and say, Excuse me, sir, I've got a righteousness that is by faith and apart from the law. Well, you try that one out on the judge and you'll get extra time to party in prison. And so can you see the issue? It's a very difficult issue. And then consider this in Romans 3.24, the righteousness of God, uh, all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and are acquitted freely by His grace. You mean the judge can do that? Get me his bank account number. I want to put some money in there. Try that on the electorate, and the judge will get extra time to enjoy his retirement. 
So you can see that it is reassuring to have a person of the magnitude of a justice of the Supreme Court give a clear and reasoned ruling, reconciling these difficulties because we do struggle with them. Every time you feel guilt, every time you feel distance from God, every time you feel a lack of peace towards God, you are actually wrestling with the issue of the righteousness of God and your standing before God, who is a righteous God who gave us a law that we should obey. And if God gave the law but now seems to shrug it off and say, well, it doesn't really matter... I'll acquit you by my grace. Then how are we to consider the law from now on? Uh, What is our relationship to the law? And what is our relationship to the law giver? And Paul addresses the issues very simply and brings a wonderful expansion of the whole idea. And I think in the power of the Holy Spirit that you will leave this morning dancing in your heart and celebrating the gospel. Now hear the word of the Lord. May the words of my mouth and the meditation of our hearts be acceptable to you, O Lord, our strength and redeemer. Romans chapter 7. The heading is released from the law, bound to Christ. Do you not know, brothers and sisters, for I am speaking to those who know the law, that the law has authority over someone only as long as that person lives? For example, by law, a married woman is bound to her husband as long as he is alive. But if her husband dies, she is released from the law that binds her to him. So then, if she has sexual relations with another man while her husband is still alive, she is called an adulteress. But if her husband dies, she is released from that law and is not an adulteress if she marries another man. So, my brothers and sisters, you also died to the law through the body of Christ, that you might belong to another, to him who was raised from the dead, in order that we might bear fruit for God. For when we were in the realm of the flesh, the sinful passions aroused by the law We're at work in us so that we bore fruit for death. But now, by dying to what once bound us, we have been released from the law so that we serve in the new way of the Spirit and not in the old way of the written code. May God bless our understanding and our delight in him. We all started life married to the law. Like it or not, that was our spiritual standing. It's a universal truth to think about God and heaven in terms of being 
good enough. The phrase you will hear most often at every funeral you go to, whether it's said publicly from the the stadium platform or whether whispered in the ears of the grieving person, is he was a good man. And suddenly the resume is filled with light at a funeral. And it's because we are married to law and we think that a good man is more likely to go heaven than a bad man. When we confess Christ as Lord, a profound thing happens to our relationship to the law. You notice the apostle does not say the law dies. He says we die to the law. But that's not the end of the story. We die to the law in order to be united with Christ. And our relationship to the law is now in a very different place. It is this changed relationship that is breathtaking. The first was a dysfunctional marriage in the extreme. A dysfunctional marriage is one in which the sinful passions are aroused and bear the fruit of death. And how does this happen? Well, it's a rule-dominated marriage. And so the woman in this marriage has got from her husband an autocratic authoritarianism which tells her what to do every moment of her life. Every day then becomes a burden. There can be no joy where the only thing you hear from your spouse is, do this, do that, or else. Discontent sets in. Always seething beneath the surface. It will start being displayed in withdrawal, silence, and even sullenness. A sense of dread and of resentment sets in. There will be no spontaneous affection. There will be nothing of love demonstrated in small deeds of kindness. The job will be done according to the rule and no more. You define my work, well, I'll do my work. And the relationship descends into living death. There was once a woman who lived in just such a situation. And in the mercy of God, her husband died. She then married a caring, loving, nurturing man. And her life was one of joy in a functional marriage. And years later, she was cleaning out the attic and came across an old diary of hers and opened it up and she began to cry. Because in the diary, in her ex-husband's handwriting were written the duties of her life day by day, year by year, burden by burden. And as she examined her life and that record of what was required of her, her tears of sorrow turned to tears of joy. Because she realized she was doing all that and more with a sense of joy and fulfillment. And so a functional marriage is a love-orientated environment. It is nurturing. Nobody is saying, do this, do that. The two are looking after each other. How do I help? How do I serve? They are encouraging and tender. 
They are looking for ways to please one another and at times outdoing each other in doing the things that are pleasing to one another. They are asking with sensitivity when they realize that there is a withdrawal and a solitude happening in the marriage. How have I offended you? How can I prevent offending you in the future? What can I do to please you? And I want to continue pleasing you. And it is creative in finding ways to please, is it not? You see something that your beloved likes in the store and you take it home as a treat. And in all sorts of little ways, I hope you demonstrate your love for your partner. Now, I wish that was describing me 100%. But my wife's here, so she knows I'm only about 40% there. But this is what it's like to know Christ. He is all of that and more to you. Therefore, when you describe this whole process throughout the Old Testament, you find that Ezekiel, for example, writing about a thousand years before Christ, God says, I will give you a new heart and put a new spirit in you. I will remove from you your heart of stone and give you a heart of flesh. And I will put my spirit in you, the new way of the spirit. And I will move you to follow my decrees and be careful to keep my laws because it will be steeped in love. And when Jeremiah speaks about it also about a thousand years before Christ, God says through him, this is the covenant I will make with the people of Israel after that time, declares the Lord. I will put my law in their minds and write it on their hearts. I will be their God and they will be my people. No longer will they teach their neighbor or say to one another, know the Lord, because they will all know me. From the least of them to the greatest, declares the Lord. And then this tender tenderness. For I will forgive their wickedness and will remember their sins no more. And that when it comes to God actually saying what that looks like in the Song of Songs, this is what he says, Place me like a seal over your heart, like a seal on your arm, for love is as strong as death, its jealousy as enduring as the grave. Love flashes like fire, the brightest kind of flame. Many waters cannot quench love, nor can rivers drown it. If a man tried to buy love with all his wealth, his offer would be utterly scorned. And when it comes to the book of Romans, this is how the Apostle Paul puts the, the Christian experience in chapter 5. For we know, he says, how dearly God loves us. Because he has given us his Holy Spirit to fill our hearts with his love. That's the new way of the Spirit. It is, first of all, do you notice God's gift 
we know he loves us because he has given us this. Remember Song of Solomon, if you gave all your wealth to buy this, it would be utterly scorned. That's not how love works. And so God in his goodness and in his majesty and in his love gives us this gift. And you notice that it fills our hearts with his love. That word fills is the word for flood. It's not God with an eyedropper measuring out one drop of love. Clink. It's the tsunami of God coming, flooding, filling, carrying everything before it, making you aware of God's love. And what does that look like and what does it feel like? Well, in Romans chapter 5, he tells us what this new way of the Spirit looks like. And he describes the life flooded by the love of God. And he says in verse 1, we have peace with God. So that we can define peace. Let's unpack the word and ask with association, what sort of things come to your mind when you think about peace? How about security? Contentment. Satisfaction. Fulfillment. Joy. Positive expectations filled with hope. Freedom from guilt. Freedom from shame. Freedom from anxiety and from fear. And all of this relating to the past and all your guilt and shame from then relating to the present and everything that you're going under experiencing in your life right now and all into the future the peace of god is like an umbrella and it is raised over you and the holy spirit floods your heart to make you say yes i know this and so you can face the wildest storms with serenity for you know that peace is not the quietness of the cemetery. It is the tranquility when your vessel is about to be swamped in a hurricane. What else does it look like? Well, in Romans chapter 5 verse 2, he says, Christ has brought us into this place of undeserved privilege where we now stand. It's the place we occupy, the place of access to God. He's not over the horizon. He's not even next door. We are in his living room. That's where we hang out all day long. And what else does it look like? The third thing that the apostle says in Romans 5, in explaining this, is that we rejoice in the hope of glory. Life is filled with the expectation of God's glory. 
So when you understand this correctly, you wake up with a song in your heart. And there's a knowledge that by the end of the day, the will of God will have been done. You may goof up and even take wrong turns and even do some rebellious stuff. But the love of God shed abroad in your heart says at the end of the day, my will has been done and welcome. Tomorrow we'll take it further. That God orchestrated everything, even all of my goofing off. And I know that all things do work together for the good of those who love God. And then the fourth element, and this is the most astonishing of all. The other three have been lifting us up so that we're riding on top of the wave. And now we go down into the trough and we look around us. And he says, we also rejoice in our suffering because we know it is productive. There is purpose at work and it extends to our pain and to our sin and to our suffering so that we face such things with hearts that are at ease in God's purposes. And we even say, thank you for you are producing a different person. I don't like the means of production. But thank you, you are building my character. Now, of course, as I confessed in the functional marriage, I perform at about 40% of a functional marriage. My wife may even say it's a bit lower. And here with these four things, we may well be saying, well, I don't actually feel the peace of God and I don't understand that I live in the presence of God. Sometimes he's so far away and I don't rejoice in hope and glory is the last thing that I think is happening in my life. And far from rejoicing in my suffering, I tend to complain. So are you telling me that the love of God has not been shed abroad in my heart? Well, I'm saying to you that God has given this to you as a gift. And like every other gift, it's one that you have to receive. And those times when I'm not feeling at peace and feeling distant and not feeling hope and complaining about my lot... The apostle says, Jesus, our Lord, was delivered over to death for, for our sins and raised to life for our justification. Therefore, we have peace and access and hope and satisfaction in our suffering. And I myself must go to the cross many times a day in order to say thank you again to God and receive in that moment the gift that he gives me. I don't have to fight and struggle and wrestle and find some way to get there. I'm living in the place of access. I in my mind go to the cross and I say thank you and maybe for 10 seconds I will have peace. 
And if my circumstances are such that in 20 seconds time there's no more peace, I go back to the cross and say thank you again. And I bought myself 15 seconds of peace out of a life of torment. And that is the dynamic of living in the new way of the Spirit. And out of gratitude, living in gratitude in that new way of the Spirit, of course, I want to please God. The lifesaver who dragged you out of the surf and lost his life in the process. Do you take a six-inch nail and go and key his car? Of course not. Your heart is overflowing with gratitude and you find ways to say thank you to his family and to live a different life. And so we come to the conclusion that whereas the law used to thunder at us, With condemnation, do this, do that, or else you will go to hell, and so on and so on and so on. Now that we have died to the law and are united to Christ, it whispers confirmation. Yes, God, I want to please you. I will not just live the reality of the law. I want to do more. So the law is not done away with, it reaches its real and correct place. And God is exalted as he could never be exalted when we were simply in the do this, do that mode. And then this love develops such a sensitivity that you begin to understand God's heart and mind And sometimes you know immediately when you've done something stupid or sinful and you are able immediately to say, God, I hate offending you. You're so great in your mercy and love. I don't want to do that. Help me not to do that again. And he does. And then we keep on receiving this gift. Ah, that's the new way of the Spirit. Is it not glorious? So as we practice the receiving of this gift of friendship until it becomes as easy as riding your bicycle. You remember when you first learned it was wobbly at first. You actually rode into a few trees and hedges and skinned and scraped yourself. But now when you ride your bike, it's unconscious and you never think... How do I do this again? You just jump on and go off with a smile on your dial. And so we all receive the gift of God's friendship this morning. Some here, maybe for the very first time, you've never thought of God as your friend and as Him flooding your heart with His love in the Holy Spirit. But now we realize that we are deeply loved with profound understanding. And you know what it's like when someone looks beyond the surface right into your heart. There where it's dappled with good and evil. They know the worst about you. And they say, I love you. Then that love enfolds you. 
brings you to a place of delicious peace, fills you with irrepressible joy, makes you secure and gives you hope. Then your spirit soars like an eagle's, and obstacles, they become opportunities. Then in that mysterious moment of complete love, Gratitude shapes every word and thought and motivation and action. And then you quiver with a desire to please, sensitized to every nuance of the relationship, and so desirous of pleasing that you find yourself living to the full instead of living to the least. That is the new way of the Spirit. Let us pray together. God's gaze is upon you. His eye is going beyond the surface right into the core of your being, going deeper than you've ever been before, seeing the dappled shadows of good and evil there. And now God whispers into your consciousness, I love you. The flood of his love lifts every burden takes away every shame, takes away every incident of guilt, gives you peace, makes you secure, fills you with hope. You are loved.